Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Lee Stout and Harry West, authors of Lair of the Lion. Our guests today are Lee Stout and Harry West, and they are the authors of this book, Lair of the Lion, A History of Beaver Stadium. Lee Stout, we'll start with you. Uh, For someone who has never been to a Penn State game, can you describe game day? Wow. Overwhelming experience at the beginning. Um, You're talking about uh, at a a game that's a a sellout, for example. You're talking about uh, over 107,000 people in the stadium and uh, uh, you know, a large number of people out in the parking lots tailgating before the game. I mean, today there are people who continue to tailgate. You can find flat screen TVs and satellite dishes. Uh, you know, people will go and tailgate and then they'll watch the game on television sitting in the, sitting in the parking the lot, yeah, <laughs> outside of the stadium. If they do, and probably those people don't have tickets, but they come along for that fun experience of 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 the game so it's uh and uh, you know once you're once you're in there um you know the bands the the uh, the football action the the sound of the game uh, is it's a it's an enormous experience uh, harry how often do you go to games well when i was a student i went regularly back in the 50s and i went occasionally as a faculty member but uh I don't go to games anymore. I, I enjoy the flat screen at home. I'm at the stage where it, uh, I enjoy football, but uh, not the hubbub of going to a game. It's what more was, than I can handle in the 80s. What was game day like in the 50s? Well, it was quite different than it is now. I mean, uh, of course, the stadium was much smaller, and uh, it didn't. we didn't have tailgating at that time. And... Um, the dress was different. I mean, the students, uh, you, you had a corset, you, you had a mum for your date, you know, and things like that. And uh, it was just much lower key It was than it is now. I mean, it, there was no television to speak of when I was a student back in the 50s. So that was before Beaver Stadium. That's right. It was the old, it was New Beaver Field, which was in the location uh, next to the Nittany Lion Inn and seated about 27,000 people at that time. What was that like? What were the amenities? What was? The, how could you see the field? Well, you could see the field without any problem. I mean, it was an open, you, you never had to deal with columns or anything like that. And uh, But, you know, the, it was a hot dog and a Coke maybe at halftime, but you didn't have all the, the, the food options that you have today. And... Uh, it was just a much lower case. It was a Saturday afternoon affair always because uh, we still had Saturday morning classes and we didn't have uh, television to deal with and we didn't have lights, so it was always a 1.30 game. And uh, it, was, it was kind of just like a big high school game. 
Was the scoreboard very fancy? No, it, was, it wasn't an electronic scoreboard. It was, I mean, they, the, the numbers would light up for the scores, but uh, nothing like we have today. You didn't have any, any visual uh, material on the, on the scoreboard. It was just to tell you what the score was if you hadn't been paying attention. How were the teams? We had good teams back then. We had very good teams. And uh, uh, the schedule was not as intense as it is now. I mean, we played schools like Holy Cross and Fordham and schools like that back in those days. And, uh, but it was, it, was, it was more of a, of a small college environment than it is now, even though we still played some big teams like Army and, and Pitt once a year. And at that time, we always played Pitt at Pittsburgh because uh, we didn't have a stadium as, one, as big as the one in Pitt, Pittsburgh. And so it was, we, we didn't have the high profile that we have now. But we had some excellent players, and, and, and we were beginning to emerge as a national power. So this book, Lair of the Lion, if somebody buys this, what do they get? Um, well, you, you get a, a beautifully illustrated and produced book to start with. So the typical buyer is going to be a Penn State fan, I would say. Um, and uh, so that person is going to uh, see um, how the how the stadium experience has evolved they're going to see well really three things and and harry br brought to this project uh his experience as a civil engineer and so how the stadium evolved as a structure uh and how its location changed uh as as an archivist and and a history person uh whose focus has been on the history of the university uh, what I brought to it was the sense of the historical context, how football and, and the history of the university interplay, as well as how the fan experience changes from the 1890s to, to the present. How often, when you were putting the book together, did you come across something that was a, something new? Um, relatively often. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, well, I, in, in my case, it was... Uh, um, you know, I, I had, I knew the background very well of the history of the university. I'd been doing talks on that uh, for student and alumni groups for years. Um, I write a monthly column for a local magazine for Town and Gown, mostly on Penn State history. And uh, so I was very familiar with that part, and I'd written an earlier book on the history of the creamery called Ice Cream U. Um, so in terms of the history of the university, I was pretty well versed in it. I didn't expect to find any surprises. There were things about the history of football and the history of the fan experience that, that did surprise me. Um, one of the things we tried to deal with, Harry mentioned uh, how people dressed for the game. And of course, that has changed. And I found a book written by a Penn State alum who's now a, has a PhD and is a professor on the evolution of of clothing styles and the influence of, of college students on fashion. And her thesis is essentially that it's the college students that influence the, the turn from formal to casual clothing. And you certainly see that. I mean, in the, in, if you go back to the 30s, and I think we have a photo in there of, of a game in the 30s that's really focused on the crowd, um, you know, the women are wearing dresses and many of them corsages. Uh, the men are wearing suits and ties, uh, overcoats, 
hats, fedoras, uh, and uh, you know they. This was the way. This was common for people to dress this way uh, for many occasions, uh, and that persisted to a certain extent into the 50s and 60s. Although students were certainly pushing the uh, to be to dress more casually. Uh, and you get to, and adults as well, uh, and of course you get to the today where, you know, if you aren't wearing something that's blue or white and has some kind of Penn State emblem or letters or words or something on there, people kind of look at you like, aren't you a fan? <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, that's a, that, that alone is a, you know, a significant change, and I, I don't think I ever really appreciated that. Harry, what did you learn while doing this book? Well, this all started for me. I retired in 1997, and I was quite ready to retire in terms of getting out of committee meetings, but I knew I'd miss the students. So I had taught structural engineering my whole career, but I volunteered to develop a course on the history of structures that I taught as a humanities course. And I started with Stonehenge and pyramids, Gothic cathedrals, all the way up to modern structures. But I intentionally put a lecture in on the history of Beaver Stadium because it's big, everybody knows it's there, and it has a very interesting evolution as a structure, some of the challenges that they had and some of the problems that they had. And this then became something that student groups wanted and local community groups wanted and so forth. And um, at one point my, because it was, it was mainly on the engineering aspect of it, at one point my son, said, Dad, you ought to write a book on this. And I said, nobody would be interested in a book that dealt with the engineering of Beaver Stadium. And then Lee and I got talking at the gym one day about uh, this possibility, and we sort of talked about the possibility of doing something that would bring in the, the history of the, stadium, of, of the stadium in terms of the history of the university and, and so forth, and, and it eventually took that direction. But, but for me, of course, it was mainly the structure and uh, some of the other things I had experienced. But uh, I didn't know all the history of the stadium, but I knew of, of, the, uh, of the university as it related to the stadium, but I knew about the structure. But I learned a lot of new things along the way. When you look at the stadium today, what engineering-wise is, is really innovative or, or remarkable? Well, first of all, they moved the entire stadium. I mean, the whole, the whole field, Beaver Field, New Beaver Field was in one location. And in 1959 and 60, they built this enlarged structure. And as it was being created, it looked like a stadium that was too high. But then after the 59 season, they dismantled into 700 pieces the, the, uh, the Beaver Field and moved it and placed it as a part of the stadium. And it went from 27,000 to roughly 44,000. They moved all the seats? They moved all the seats, yeah. They, 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 the, the whole structure was moved. Not just the seats, but the whole structure was moved. And then uh, at a, they, there were periodic additions to it. They added 20 rows here and 10 rows there and so forth. And then in 1977, they raised the whole stadium. They lifted it 12.6 feet and added uh, 20 additional rows down over the running track. And that was really 
Nothing like that had ever been done before. I don't think anything like that's ever been done since. So it's a very interesting problem structurally. And you can still go to the students. I would show them things that they could find today that would be evidence of what was done then, where the welding on the columns and things like that. And students enjoyed taking their friends there and saying, well, this is, this is how it happened. And then they had a, a major problem with when they added the north deck with a, a structural cracking. And uh, the way that was eventually uh, taken care of through a post-tensioning process to, to arrest the cracking and, and uh, prevent additional cracking from occurring. I mean, it's just been a, an evolution of, of, uh, of structural problems that have been solved and the structure has grown. And then the latest thing, of course, is when it really turned into a building when they added some modern enhancements and so forth. And, so it's a very it's it's an interesting story to 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 look at the evolution of it. If you go walk around the stadium today, how much of it is still there from 1960? Well, they started steel in 1934, and they it, they steel went from 2,000 seats initially to the 27,000 that they had, and all all of that structure is presently in the new in the stadium. And that's the stuff that had been. On, old, on New Beaver Field? On New Beaver Field, and that started in 1934, and um, it, it is all part of the stadium as it exists today. Well, Lee, when does the story of this stadium begin? Uh, it really begins with the beginning of football, um, which is, uh, to put that in historical context, that's the beginning uh, of extracurricular activities. Um, when Penn State was founded and when uh, in the 1850s, when classes first began in 1859, uh, it was a very rigidly controlled uh, existence for the students. The president and the faculty really were in charge and they dictated everything uh, that students were allowed to do and the discipline was very strict. But gradually over the next 25 or 30 years, uh, that began to loosen up and you had things like intercollegiate athletics, you had uh, fraternities and later sororities, you had student publications and arts and music and so forth. All of these extracurricular activities began to develop and evolve and athletics was part of that. Uh, and uh, uh, baseball, probably the first uh, sport, uh, you know, came in after the Civil War uh, and then football uh, began to develop in the early 1880s. The first football game was Rutgers and Princeton in, back in 1869, but it wasn't until the 1870s that, that things really, that other colleges really began to, uh, to develop that, that kind of thing. So you have pictures in here of Beaver Field, uh, 1893. Mm -hmm. So if you had gone to a football game then, what would the experience have been like? Uh, pretty, you'd be pretty lonely. <laughs> now, only in the sense that uh, the grants, the original grandstand at Old Beaver Field, uh, sat 500 people, uh, and uh, they did have armchair seats, though. Uh, you know, they they did. absolutely, <laughs> yeah, nice seat backs. And <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, you know, this was a small school at that point. Uh, in 1893, the the student population was probably. Uh, less than 300. Uh, there were maybe 50 faculty members. The community, the town of State College, uh, maybe another 300 people. 
Uh, you didn't have a whole lot of alumni at that point. The Alumni Association was established in 1870, by which point there were only something like 60 graduates, you know, from the entire history of the school uh, up to then. Uh, and so there wasn't an enormous audience out there just waiting for Penn State football to occur. And State College uh, in those days was very isolated. It was hard to get to. Why was the college put there in the first place? Well, because it was very isolated. <laughs> um, that's one of the reasons. A lot of, I think a lot of people assume that because it is in the, relatively speaking, the geographical center of the state, um, that made it accessible to everyone, although a later president said it was equally inaccessible from all parts of Pennsylvania. Uh, the trustees, uh, one of these young men, and it was young men, just men at first, uh, they wanted them protected from the evils of the city. Uh, so this was a farm school, an agricultural school. Uh, so they needed a rural environment. Center County had excellent um, soil for a farm school, almost as good as the Piedmont soils in Lancaster County and Berks County. Uh, what did it mean that it was a land-grant college? Well, essentially the, the land-grant colleges, Penn State was founded before the Land-Grant College Act was signed by Abraham Lincoln in 1862. Uh, the Land-Grant College uh, concept was developed by Justin Morrill, uh, a Vermont congressman, later senator, uh, and it had a great deal of support because it, was, uh, it took uh, federal public land out west uh, and uh, provided uh, an apportionment of thousands of acres to each state, which could then be sold and the proceeds invested to provide an endowment for a college uh, of arts, uh, of agriculture and the mechanic arts, which is why some of them are called A&M schools, mechanic arts is engineering. So these were supposed to be schools that would provide education in agriculture and engineering and gradually other technical subjects, uh, the basic sciences in Penn State's case, uh, mining, schools of mines, which became earth and mineral sciences, uh, and uh, gradually the liberal arts and, and uh, the arts and uh, other uh, aspects, business and, and so forth. Uh, but these were, <clears throat> excuse me, these were not uh, the classical liberal arts schools uh, like Penn or, uh, or Allegheny or Dickinson. Um, these were schools that emphasized science and technology. So a little bit more about game day in, mm -hmm. in the 1890s. Yep. Uh, you said there would not have been many people present. Right. And for, was there a scoreboard? Uh, initially, no. Um, I don't think there was really a scoreboard until they moved um, the grandstand and the, and the field location up to where it uh, was known as New Beaver Field. Yeah, I think that's and that was, that was in 1908. Uh, to get it out of, because the college was growing by that oh, point. Where was Old Beaverfield? It was, uh, if you're familiar with the campus, if you know the hub, and across the street from the hub is Osmond Laboratory, there's a parking lot behind Osmond Laboratory. That would be approximately the location of Old Beaverfield. Uh, there is an historical marker there. Um, and, uh, but it was, you know, the, the college was very small. It didn't have a lot of buildings. Um, of course, since they didn't have a lot of students. Uh, and so uh, there were houses for professors right on campus. 
And this, the, the old beaver field was almost like a kind of a village green. Sort of at the center of uh, yeah, the campus. Yeah, right in the center mm -hmm. of the campus. But as it grew, they no longer could afford to have that, that uh, athletic field right in the center, and they moved it out to the northwest corner of campus, uh, which eventually became the home of Rec Hall and the Nittany Lion Inn and other athletic facilities. Any buildings from the 1890s still in use up there? Oh, yeah. Um, the uh, right across this well right nearby old beaver field is a building called old botany it's not it was the original botany building it's not used for that purpose today i think the labor studies department is in there uh and uh um the uh the the old president's house uh, still stands from the that was originally built in the 1860s it's now the front uh part uh, of the uh, Hintz Alumni Center. Some of the ag buildings also. Yeah, some of the ag buildings, um, I would say, well, those are, those are pretty much um, dating from the turn of the century. Uh, I mean, if you would look, there's a famous print that people often see of the college in 1910, a bird's eye view, and uh, you know, there's maybe 30 or so buildings on that, probably only eight of them are still in existence. Harry, when you were working on this book, did you pour over drawings of Old Beaver Field about the bleachers? Yeah, in fact, uh, the, uh, archive, the, the physical plant office has everything electronically, and I was able to go in there and, and pour through those and get copies of it. I have a big roll of uh, drawings. And the interesting thing was I discovered then that the, the original steel grandstand was composed of folded plate material that could be welded together, I mean, riveted together, both longitudinally and, and adding rows of it seats. It wasn't all wood? No, I'm talking about the steel, mm. the, the, the beginning of the steel stadium. Mm -hmm. And it was a patented um, thing from, from uh, a professor at the uh, University of Iowa called a Lambert Grandstand. His name was Byron F. Lambert, and it was patented. And you look at the drawings and you find that in the early development of the stadium, those patents were, were cited. Now later on when they added some, back in 69 and 72, when they made some additions, they no longer cited the patent, so apparently the patent was not necessary, but they were using the same, the same style. And, uh, but it was amazing what I could find in terms of all the details of the structure and how it was put together and the spacing of the columns and so forth. Uh, all of that was available and the material that I was able to get from the physical plant. Did they have bathrooms? Well, they, not initially, but they did eventually. And there were, as, as some of the stadium evolved at New Beaver Field, they, they uh, had restrooms that they added. And of course, the original old Beaver Field I don't think it was necessarily for the fans, but the underneath it was a, it was a shower and locker room for mm -hmm. the football players yeah. and so forth. And uh, but uh, as the, as the stadium evolved, as the steel stadium, there were restrooms. I don't really know. I didn't see any notice of that when they had the the early wooden stadiums, but uh, I'm sure they had something available. Did the band play at those games? Um, the band really is a 20th century uh, mm -hmm. innovation. And uh, I would say fairly early on, um, the band did play. The band was an initially 
uh, developed for uh, military science program. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you noted that, that that it was in the military science department. Why yeah. is the band in the, uh, military science? Well, it's, it goes back to the history of, of marching bands to begin with. Uh, they were developed originally to support uh, armies uh, for that had very formal marching as a part of their uh, tactical operations and the you know, goes back to the you know to probably to the 18th or se even 17th century uh, in armies and uh, so as a land-grant school uh, Penn State was expected to provide uh, military instruction it wasn't ROTC it didn't lead to a to a commission but the army had a you know, some poor second lieutenant stuck up here as commandant of cadets, a very fancy term. Uh, but the student, all the male students were expected to be part of this cadet corps, uh, to periodically dress in military uniforms and to drill. Um, the commandant eventually became the kind of predecessor to the dean of men because he became responsible for discipline and punishments. Uh, for students who broke the rules, they'd be in their uniform with their muskets on their shoulders marching off their, their demerits. But as, as a part of the training, after the Spanish-American War, uh, they felt it would be good to have uh, a, a drum and bugle corps, which evolved into uh, a, more of a, a military band wearing military uniforms, which eventually became uh, a band that performed at athletic events. But it, it was, um, while it was necessarily part of the military program, it was still a student organization. So the university, the college administration did not pay for it uh, or run it. They hired the director when they finally had a director, uh, but um, pretty much the students were responsible for the early band and they had to uh, raise the money for it. Um, they would hold uh, dances and uh, concerts as a benefit to to help buy uniforms and musical instruments. I want to read something you have in here is the uh, the cheer, the 1887 college yell, ya ya pause, ya ya ya, wish whack pink black PSC. Mm -hmm. Their colors were pink and black. Initially, yes. This is, this is kind of part of the transition uh, in extracurricular activities where the emphasis had been earlier on on your loyalty and your connection to your class. And so every class had uh, their own colors, their own uh, songs, their own yells. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you went through freshman customs where you had class scraps and kind of these periodic battles between the freshmen and sophomores whereby the freshmen were really initiated into college, made part of, of the college through their class, those loyalties with the rise of, of athletics especially uh, kind of transitioned into loyalty to the school uh, and the athletic program. and so. Uh, from class colors, you had school colors. From class songs, you had a school song, the alma mater. From class yells, you had school yells and cheers. Uh, and uh, you know, this is this is part of the evolution of the of the fan experience of the game because these things became part of the athletic event. When did the Penn State football start to be the thing to go to on Saturdays? Um, I think probably fairly early. Um, the American public became uh, just tremendously enthusiastic about college football 
in the, you know, almost from the 1870s and 80s. Uh, in those days, uh, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were the cream of the crop. They were the, they were the Alabama and Auburn, uh, you know, of, of the day. All of the, you know, when Walter Camp began to name all American football players and a kind of a putative national champion, they were always uh, students from these schools, from these what we call Ivy League schools today. Uh, and they had, uh, they would play games. There was an initial athletic conference that included those, those teams and their championship games would draw 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people. Uh, and they would be played in New York City frequently at the polo grounds. Uh, and so the public was just, you know, really taken. And football, I mean, today, football for many, most, for many people is the NFL. You know, we're looking forward to the Super Bowl as like the sine qua non of athletic events. Um, you know, and, and then we'll have the Olympics too, but you know, oh, the Super Bowl. Well, pro football was almost non-existent at that point. Uh, and college football was, you know, that was the game. It was college football. Uh, Who did Penn State play? This is the 1890s, 1900s? In the, yeah, in the early days, we were playing just the local college teams, Bucknell, Dickinson, Gettysburg, uh, and uh, places like Lafayette, Washington, and Jefferson. Uh, we began playing Pitt when it was still Western University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, gradually, uh, after the turn of the 20th century, we began to see Penn State expanding and playing uh, stronger teams, Army, Navy, Syracuse, uh, and they began to play some of these, some of the real powers, Harvard and Yale and so forth. Uh, and Penn uh, became a, a major opponent. Harry, when did old Beaverfield become new Beaverfield? When they moved it in 1908. Uh, Old Beaver Field was at the location across from the hub, as Lee indicated. And, uh, you know, as the campus grew, that central location was no longer appropriate for athletics, so they moved it in this distant corner, which uh, they actually moved the structure. The, the structure that was there, the grandstand that had been built at Old Beaver Field was physically moved to New Beaver Field. And it was then expanded and as time went on I think in 1920 or so they they replaced that original structure with a more conventional set of bleachers on both the east and west side but uh, that change took place in 1908 and what was then a distant corner of campus in time it became prime property also and that's when it moved again out to the far east part of campus where it's presently located. And what is there now what, where New Beaver Field was? Well, there's a parking garage and a couple academic buildings there. The parking garage is probably the thing that's most central to the location of, the, of New Beaver Field, but a couple other buildings uh, just uh, north of that along uh, Park Avenue that uh, would be a, where the stadium was located. And that was right across from the dorm complex, West Hall's dorm, dorm complex. And we said that uh, Old Beaver Field seated about 500 people. How many did New Beaver Field? Well, when they first moved there, it was just about 1,000 because they, they physically moved the grandstand and they added some bleachers to the side. 
But then very quickly it grew to, you know, like 5,000, I think, in 1916 or something like that. And it was that. all wood at the time? Yeah, it was all wood. And eventually, in 1920, uh, with temporary seating, that would, they, could, they could handle 20,000 people. In fact, there's a, there's a picture in there of, a, of a, uh, a game against Syracuse in 1920, I believe it is, that uh, where there's 24, is it? Where there's 1924, I guess, where there's 20,000 people. But they had some temporary seating. And they had a bathroom then? I would imagine. I would <laughs> hope so. I would hope so. <laughs> and uh, did they have press boxes? The press, first press box, I think, was in 1920. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and then that was the first press box when it was still wood. When they went to steel, actually, they, the first press box that they had with the steel stadium was at the time considered to be the, the, the best press box in the country. It got very, very good reviews. And then at uh, New Beaver Field, eventually there was a four-level press box. The upper three levels were for press, and the lower level was actually below the grandstand was a kitchen to prepare food for the people. And then that press box was physically moved in 1959 in its entirety to, to Beaver Stadium. And then that's been expanded over time. Uh, it became much longer, and uh, it, it has a different complex. And just last year or so there was a major renovation to that although it's still not a uh, first-class press box by today's standards in fact i think when keith jackson was interviewed when they he was the uh, announcer at one of the games uh, after the latest addition to the stadium and he made the comment he said they may have spent 93 million dollars on this stadium but they didn't spend 93 cents on the press box when did they put up lights? In the 80s. They, they had a few games oh, there where they had temporary no lights lighting. lights till the 1980s. Yeah. In, in the 80s, they had some prime games where they would bring in lighting. In fact, the, the television, ABC, or whoever the telecasting network was, they would pay for that at mm -hmm. that time. They would have night games. But then late in the 80s, they actually put in lighting, uh, permanent lighting, which they can now use you know, whenever they need. In fact, any afternoon game, they turn the lights on before the game is over so that uh, there'll be some uniform lighting. Lee, do you know when the games started being broadcast on radio? Uh, in the 1920s. Um, in the very early days of, of radio, Penn State had its own radio station uh, operated through the electrical engineering department initially. Uh, and. Uh, so they were broadcasting games 1923, 24. I mean, kids might be listening on crystal sets at home. Uh, it was soon thereafter that commercially made radios, um, like RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, was one of the major manufacturers uh, of radio sets. Um, it wasn't until probably the, the 1930s that public radio was sort of pushed out of existence by commercial radio stations, uh, and Penn State got its first commercial radio network. Um, the Atlantic Richfield Oil Company was the sponsor. They paid Penn State $1,500 to broadcast all the games that season, and they began the network with KDKA in Pittsburgh and a couple of other stations. 
as the archivist, did you ever come across recordings of those early radio games? Uh, no, I don't think, I don't believe we, we have any, anything that survives from that early on. But one of the things that I discovered that I didn't realize, um, older uh, fans might have realized it, but for, for some time, uh, Penn State's main play-by-play -play announcer was Bob Prince, the voice of the Pirates. Uh, and uh, that was up until the early 1960s where he was doing both Pirate baseball and Penn State football games. Uh, and he, he decided to, uh, I, well, I don't think he decided, it was the Pittsburgh Pirates that pressured him because um, the overlap in September was becoming a problem. And uh, so he had to, they said, you've got to make a choice. It's either Pirates or Penn State, and he chose the Pirates. Harry, when the, the football team moved into New Beaver Field, how did it compare to other football stadiums for other colleges around the country? Well, it was, it was more representative of, of, the, of the average situation. I mean, not, this was after New Beaver Field developed, not when they first moved there. Mm -hmm. uh, when it developed it to a stadium of 27,000. They I just think kept was, adding on? Yeah, they just kept adding on. And um, in 1949, they went from just east and west stands that seated 14,700. They added the horseshoe and extended the structure at the south end of both east and west sides to 27,000. And at that point, I think it was, I mean, when I went there as a, as a student in 1954, it was kind of what you had at most uh, colleges other than the, the big football powers, you know. Michigan always had their big house with 100,000 people and, and Franklin Field in, in uh, Philadelphia was large and Pitt Stadium was large. So that's the reason that Penn State visited those schools because the, the attendance could be much higher. But I think it, in, in the 50s, when I went to school there, it was representative of, of what most land-grant schools that had programs and state universities, I think it would be comparable at that point. Lee, who named it Beaver Stadium? Uh, it was the Student Athletic Association that recommended that it be named Beaver Field. Initially, it, Old Beaver Field was, was when it was constructed. It was really uh, Governor James A. a Beaver, who was a Belfont native and was was a member of the Board of Trustees. His father-in-law, Hugh McAllister, had been uh, a member of the original board back in 1855. Uh, and Beaver was very attracted to Penn State, and as governor, he, uh, he managed to initiate uh, regular state appropriations for Penn State, which it had not had before, and included in that were appropriations for buildings, uh, and that included um, uh, what was it, $3,500, I think, uh, in two bi different bienniums, uh, a total of $3,500 to grade the field, uh, put in a track, put in a baseball diamond and some tennis courts, and build this 500-seat grandstand. Uh, and the students were so grateful, the Athletic Association uh, voted to name it for Governor Beaver, and the Board of Trustees concurred, and so it became Beaver Field. Uh, the interesting thing is that when they moved it in 1908, Beaver was still president of the Board of Trustees, although he would die in 1914, but he was still a tremendous uh, favorite of the students. Uh, he, uh, he addressed every new class and said, would say, you know, you're my class. 
Uh, and there is outside of the student gates today a, a gigantic rock with a plaque on it, um, a, uh, an image of Governor Beaver on it. Uh, and it was the, dedicated by the class of uh, 1909. Uh, and, you know, he was their idol. Was there ever a movement to change the name of the stadium, like when they went from New Beaver Field to the stadium? No, uh, the, the ideal of uh, Beaver, uh, even in 1959, remained. And so there was never seemed to be any question that even though they changed from Beaver Field to Beaver Stadium, it was still going to be Beaver. So who came up with the idea for moving to the stadium and actually doing a full-size stadium? Uh, it was uh, uh, a combination of things. The, the athletic department, the uh, director of intercollegiate athletics, Ernie McCoy, at that point uh, was, uh, I think, recognizing that uh, the physical situation of, of New Beaver Field was such that they, they couldn't expand it. Um, uh, to go any further north, they'd be in the middle of Park Avenue. Uh, they couldn't go uh, west because uh, they'd be in the midst of, of the Nittany Lion Inn. They had a water tower there, yeah. too. And they had a water tower mm -hmm. right behind it. Uh, they couldn't, they didn't want to go south because that would, uh, um, that would, overrun the tennis courts and, and make it, uh, they felt the views wouldn't be good, they didn't want to go east because that was practice fields. Uh, and of course the, the student enrollment was rising and the more students that wanted tickets to the, to the game in this limited size stadium, uh, the fewer paying people they would have. Uh, and so the revenue would decline and so they felt that they really didn't have a choice. They, they just knew they were going to have to move the stadium. And uh, to move it west, they'd lose the golf course. So they, moving it east into farmland uh, was the ideal. You mentioned um, the, the Nittany Inn. And you uh, say in here, in May 1930, the college broke ground for a new hotel. This was to house people who were in town for the, for the games? In part. Um, the college was also doing more and more conferences and academic meetings, and the hotels in town just were insufficient uh, to provide for that. So in 1931, it opened with rooms for $3.50 a night. Yeah. A relative bargain. <laughs> it was a bargain. And uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was managed by the Treadway Corporation, which had a string of what they called country inns across New England and the, and the Mid-Atlantic states. Uh, and it was that, that was the style that they were going for. Uh, eventually, the university took it over uh, and used it as a, uh, not just as a hotel, but also as a training ground for students in the hotel school. So, Harry, when they were finally going to build Beaver Stadium, uh, and they started with a blank sheet of paper and a blank piece of ground, what, in, when you were going over it, did you find just fascinating? Well, of course, it was out in the middle of a farmland. So they had to build an infrastructure there to support the stadium. And uh, it was interesting to see the early photographs of that because you had this evolving field with a stadium that was, you know, it, it, it looked like a big aircraft carrier on a foggy morning sitting out there on the horizon. But the first row of seats was like 30 feet from the ground because they were going to move the, the existing structure down in front of it. But... Uh, you know, when you move something out that far away, 
you have all the the, the problems of, of infrastructure, the sewer, the, the you had to deal with possibility of we're in an area where you have potholes and uh, limestone formations, so they had to make sure that they weren't dealing with any of those situations. They had to find a nice flat spot, reasonably flat spot, where they could could build this. So there was a lot of uh, of this initial infrastructure work that was done before, you know, this was all taking place in the year before the stadium was actually moved. And uh, so there was a lot of engineering work there. Yeah. How big did they plan on building it in the beginning? Well, it was going to be 44,000. In other words, they were moving the existing 27,000 in position and then the upper portions of the east and west. They didn't add anything to the horseshoe, but on the east and west side, they had additional stands that they put in place that expanded it to 44,000. And they, they could also have uh, wooden bleachers at the southern end that uh, seated about 22, 2300, something like that. Why'd they do a horseshoe and not a full bowl? Well, I'm not sure. Eventually, it did become a full bowl. So I think that uh, initially, though, they, they had a horseshoe where they located at New Beaver Field. And that was not untypical of football stadiums to have a horseshoe. And when they moved it, they, they decided to maintain the horseshoe. Uh, although, as I indicated, eventually when they, they uh, lifted the stadium, they added a southern horseshoe, you might say. And then later that was expanded and it became a full bowl. I think that uh, for the first couple of years uh, in the early 1960s, they never never reached capacity for a game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it took a while until those 44,000 seats were full. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I think for, for a good part of the 60s, um, that was that was fine. Uh, that was, you know, quite sufficient. It was really only with uh, uh, Joe Paterno becoming coach and the teams really beginning to do well in the late 1960s uh, that um, you know people's expectations for Penn State football and desire to be part of that game day experience began to really put pressure uh, on ath the athletic department and the college. Uh, by that point, the university. To uh, you know, to expand the stadium, they they anticipated some growth, I think, because when they went to the new location, they added 30 rows on the east side, 30 rows on the west side, but in front of the press box, they had 40 rows. They had 10 extra rows, and so the first uh, uh, incremental change in 1969 is when they added 10 rows on the west side to square off that area where they had the 10 extra rows in front of the press box. And then in 1972, they added 20 rows on the east side and 10 rows on the horseshoe. And, uh, they, you know, it's, and then shortly after that, they put in semi-permanent steel bleachers at the south end. It wasn't a bowl, but that then uh, elevated the seating capacity to 60,000. Was it all steel? For at that point, it was all steel. In fact, at that point, it was the largest all steel stadium in the United States. Was it considered state-of-the-art when they moved in, or was it just a, kind of an okay stadium? I don't think it was ever state-of-the-art. Yeah. No. no. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a big grandstand, basically. And um, it had some novel characteristics as a grandstand because of the feature that, that, Wetmore, that, that Lambert had, uh, had 
patented, but uh, it was a big grandstand. In fact, it was, it remained a big grandstand for all practical purposes until the expansion in 2000, 2001, when it really became a building in terms of having some features that it never had before. You talked earlier about them lifting the whole stadium up. Uh, why did they do that, and, and how did they do that? Well, they wanted to add seating, and, and you know, tracks had always been used as part of a stadium, but as time went on, that, that wasn't an important feature. And so one way to do it would have been to excavate. They could have excavated and added 20 rows of seats in that way. Uh, of course, when you excavate, you create drainage problems. And uh, so the decision was made to, to lift it and then add the 20 rows of seats uh, in front of the lifted structure. So all those seats were closer to the field? Yeah, than the, they, they yeah. covered the running track. Mm -hmm. And uh, they covered the running track. And you see today some evidence of the running track at the very edges of the east and west stands. But for the most part, the running track has been, been covered. But uh, I think that they, they looked at a number of different possibilities and they decided that lifting was the one that was the best solution, yeah. but it was unique. It was, it was nothing had ever been done like that before. They had to cut the stadium in 10 different sections, and they lifted each section, um, you know, with some 40 jacks, and the, the largest one was 500 tons. They had a very severe winter. When I talked to the contractor in Harrisburg, the... the, the, the uh, foreman of the job. He said it was the most challenging job he ever had. And they had weather problems. They had a strike on campus that uh, the, his workers wouldn't cross the picket lines. And um, he made the comment that they were putting the hardware on the locker room doors the night before the first game. They had to do the whole thing in one off season? Yes. In one off season, yeah. That was in both the case of the move and the case of the lift. They couldn't start until after the last game of the of the previous season, and it had to be finished before the first game of the following season. In fact, so I was, think really all the expansions yeah. were done in off-seasons until the last one, which yeah. took two years. And even in the last one, it took two years, but the challenge there was to get nearly 100,000 people in and out of a construction site, which is no easy task. So how's the stadium doing now? Uh, well, I think... Um, you know, in the uh, in the uh, after the Sandusky business, um, and really before the Sandusky business, the average attendance had been dropping somewhat, uh, maybe a little below a hundred thousand, ninety somewhere between ninety-five, ninety-seven thousand, uh, and so there was no anticipation of of uh, any more expansions. I think at that point they had plans. They always had long-range plans. Uh, for how they might do another expansion, but those were always, you know, sort of contingent on on uh, the demand for increased numbers of, of season tickets. Uh, the the plans in place just before the Sandusky thing broke was to make some modifications in the stadium, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have been an expansion of the stadium. It would be, you know, up until that point. The only side that hadn't really been addressed was the west side, and there were plans, you know, to 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 put in a new west side with a new press box and and some other features, maybe a restaurant and things like that, that were part of the the thinking at that point. But it wouldn't have have uh, expanded the seating very much. It would have been a modification of the structure. What right now about the stadium is is outdated? 
Well, um, I mean, when you look at, at some of the modern stadiums that are being built in cities for professional football and professional baseball, uh, you see, uh, you know, an enormous amount of amenities uh, that you don't see uh, in terms of, you know, a uh, tremendous amount of food concession stands, uh, all kinds of uh, other things you see. Luxury boxes. Luxury boxes. You see, you know, escalators and elevators everywhere. We have now, um, you know, one set of two escalators at one end. We have one elevator at one end. Um, you know, otherwise, everybody is walking up and walking down. Uh, there are the restrooms uh, and concession stands on the ground level uh, haven't been changed since 1960. Um, the, uh, the concourse at the middle level, uh, which includes restrooms and grandstands, uh, are not big enough. Um, if it's you, a great improvement over what they had before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, it's, it's but not uh, adequate. you know, at halftime, if you want to go out to one of the concession stands and get a hot dog or, you know, now the, <laughs> the choice of food is enormous compared to what it used to be, or to uh, use the restroom facilities. I mean, it is jammed. You can barely move in those areas. So it's, you know, it, there are a number of things about it. And, of course, uh, most modern stadiums now are being built with chair seating. Uh, and there's only a limited number of places in the stadium that have chair seating. The rest have benches. So, Harry, right. from an engineering standpoint, is, this, is the stadium something that can be tweaked to add these improvements, or does it need to be... Well, it's, it's going to be very difficult to, to do certain things. And, uh, for instance, the, the tread length is 27 inches. And to put armchair seats in, you need 33 inches. Okay. Now, there are sections on both the east and west side where they have small sections of armchair seats. But if you look carefully, you see they've, they've changed the decking so that they have the, the required tread length. And um, it was interesting... Recently, there was a, a talk at Penn State by um, Scott Redisek, who's a former football player, but he's also now president of, of a, a company, Populous, who has designed stadiums all over the world, Olympic stadiums and everything else. And he was saying that in the new stadiums, people don't necessarily want seats. And so they have actually designed areas where they where people can mill around. He said he's been in cases where the, the, the game is here and they're watching on a television. And uh, so in new stadiums, they're, they're actually building in places where people can stand. And uh, much more elaborate, uh, uh, what do you call it? Concessions. Uh, conce well, concession stands and also the, the, the fancy places where people can even have barbecues and things like this. I mean, it's incredible what they're building in new stadiums. Now, in one part of the stadium, they have an, an upper deck. Uh, can they add that to other parts of the stadium to increase capacity? Well, when they, they, they added an upper deck in the, at the north end at one point, okay, it was decided not to do it on the east side because of structural difficulties, and they didn't want to put columns in that would interfere with the the site of the field, and of course the new portion that they have on the south end has really two separate upper decks, right. and uh, I mean that can be done, but I, I think the, the current thinking is that, that you pretty much have to take a quadrant at a time and, and redo it entirely, 
and that, that it's going to be very difficult to tweak what we have. Can it be made bigger than it is? Well, it can be made bigger, but I don't think that's the trend these days. If anything, I think it probably will be smaller because I think the trends for bigger and bigger stadiums is a thing of the past. You have flat screen TVs and and you have people that, that want to come to the game as an event, but not the same kind of f fan interest in the game itself as was once the case. Would you say that's true? Then? I think that, yeah, I think that's, we're seeing that all over. I mean, baseball stadiums, the old, you know, big round field like Three River Stadium has been replaced by something that more resembles Forbes Field in its, in its look and feel. Uh, and it's probably 20,000 fewer seats. Um, you know, Michigan's uh, Memorial or Michigan's stadium, the big house, uh, runs neck and neck with Penn State as the as the largest football stadium, uh, co collegiate football stadium. And I think we are the what the third largest stadium in the world, literally, for for athletics. There's a stadium in Korea that's that's bigger. Uh, and uh, some of the NASCAR stadiums are and bigger. some of the yeah but they're you know they aren't connected a lot of the grandstands are just separate chunks in various places so I mean, it's that's a qualified um, a title if you will but uh, you know I just don't think that the that I think that that if Penn State uh, continues to improve its performance on the field uh, if they should win a national championship or be contending for a national championship I think you'll see sellouts, and so you'll see, I mean, just in this last season, we had a, a game that exceeded the previous uh, largest attendance ever, a bit over 110,000 people. Um, so, I mean, you know, we might get back to the days of, of selling out every home game for the season, uh, but, uh, you know, it, to, to add, uh, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 more seats, uh, it probably just doesn't make economic sense at this some of point. The, yeah, some of the talk about the the, the plans for changing Beaver Stadium, uh, they speak of some significant changes, but they don't speak of an increasing the number. In fact, they say they'd like to stay over 100,000, but they, they're not going to try to go beyond the 107,000 that we have now. Well, that'll have to be the last word. We're out of time. We've been speaking with Lee Stout and Harry West. They are the authors of this book, Lair of the Lion, A History of Beaver Stadium. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.